Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Well, I have to say, I've been looking forward to uh, this show for a really long time because Michael Thurmond is one of those state leaders whose career I've followed uh, for, what, 30 years, I think. And, uh, Michael, it's just great to have you here for Political Rewind today. Uh, thanks, Bill. You're being modest. You really discovered me. Yeah. On the back bench in the Georgia House of Representatives back in 1987. You were just a freshman from Athens, Georgia. And you anointed me with an interview <laughs> on Channel 2. I mean, really, yeah. and that was the yeah. ultimate compliment for yeah. Bill Nigget to point at you and say, step what, outside. Do you remember what it was about? What was the story? Why did I single you out? I, I have no Aside probably, from the fact that you seemed interesting. Well, probably just you felt sorry for me. That's it. But... Um, I don't remember the issue, but I remember the moment in time, and it, it was a career-changing moment for me. Well, during our conversation today, we're going to unearth a piece of information that will put your election to that legislative seat in a really interesting perspective, and we're going to get to that in a little while as we talk about your book, A Story Untold, Black Men and Women in Athens History. But let's back up up a long way. Uh, in the opening to the show, I played Sound of You, giving an interview out at the University of Georgia for their uh, uh, oral history project. They talk to a lot of leaders like yourself, and you get a chance to really talk about what your career has been like. And when you heard uh, on your headphones me play that sound of you as a young child having such vivid memories of your mom and dad in a cotton field picking cotton, I saw this very emotional reaction. Yeah? Oh, yes, I, it was unexpected, but I grew up in, as you say, rural Clark County in what is now the Sandy Creek Nature Center. Yeah. It was just rural and country and isolated. And my father was the was a sharecropper, as well as my parents uh, could not read or write and just scratched and clawed a life for his family. Uh, I have eight brothers and sisters, and, uh, it, and I learned so much from that experience, but it's not so long ago, and even now, uh, during moments of uh, controversy or difficulty, I returned to Sandy Creek. And my oak tree that I played under is still there next to the Allen House. And uh, that was uh, an amazing uh, moment in time for me and my family. What was your parents' lineage? Where had your father's family come from, your mother's family? My mother uh, was raised in Elbert County, Georgia. And uh, they are near the, not far from the Savannah River. Um, My father... It's from Oconee County, Georgia. And it's interesting, although his last name is Thurman, growing up he was known as Sidney Dooley. Mm. Uh, When he was just eight years old, uh, my grandmother and the rest of his siblings moved to Atlanta. And the family legend is that they left him behind because uh, that was a country store, and they owed the owner of the store some money. And they more or less left him behind to work, uh, to clear out the debt. But this family, the Dooleys, it was a white family, literally raised my dad from eight until he became a young man. Um, If you're born African-American in Georgia, to an African-American family in Georgia, it is, I assume, virtually impossible that you uh, don't trace your... Uh, uh, heritage back to slaves. Have you done that? Do you know what happened to you, where, where that comes into your family's picture? Yes, I was able to trace uh, my great-grandfather back to a uh, six-year-old. He was born enslaved to a Thurman family in Oconee County, Georgia, and uh, he was six in 1865. And, of course, they continued to work the land, uh, 
I tell people, if you look at me and if you don't really see a Georgia sharecropper, you're not looking close <laughs> enough. Uh, I'm the uh, product of three generations of Georgia sharecroppers. And uh, I have the heart and spirit because sharecroppers believe in hard work and they can take a small amount of material resources and accomplish great things. And one of my best lines, I guess, is I'm just a sharecropper with a law degree. <laughs> <laughs> so you were one of nine children, as you said. Uh, where youngest. did you fall in that order? I was the youngest. Oh, was, my gosh. Yes. My <laughs> dad was 50 years old when I was born. So <laughs> being the youngest, <laughs> that sort of prepared you for the rough and tumble of politics, I imagine. Well, yes, and, you know, it. Uh, when you have nine kids, and I try to explain this to my daughter, after nine children, you know, it's not a big deal when you walk or you say your first word. So I spent a lot of time in solitude. and uh, But it was interesting being the youngest of that many, and it was a loving family. And oftentimes we, in our society, somehow attempt to marginalize families because of their socioeconomic status. But we had a very loving, close-knit family. We worked together. Uh, my dad is sharecropped cotton during the day, but we had a vegetable route. And when we talk about politics, I'll tell you about it. He sold vegetables on the weekend around Athens. So my dad was also the vegetable man. How Athens. did your dad put food on the table for a, a nine children? I mean, uh, the sharecropping part of it, you can't have made a, a great deal of money as a sharecropper, and the vegetable route can't have paid that much either. Well, yeah, but my dad, and back then, he would call it hustling. It's not like hustling now, which is something illegal. Yeah, it's negative. It's negative, but not then. Uh, we would collect rags and junk and take them to Lowe's Junkyard. He did whatever it took. Yeah. to generate money to support the family. Yeah. And uh, bail hay, we would sell hay. We sold, my dad, we would have barbecues on some weekends, and uh, we also would uh, sell canned goods. Uh, my mother would pre create preserves and canned goods. We did whatever it would take to keep food on the table. Yeah, you talked about how close-knit you were. In uh, and we're we're moving towards talking about the book because th this story about your life really leads into a conversation about a story untold. Uh, the book that we're going to discuss in a minute. Uh, you had family dinners on Sundays, <laughs> Sunday Sunday afternoon, and. The entire family would engage, and I assume it was more than just your parents and the kids. Were there other relatives who would be there? Yeah, and some of my and friends. Uh, yep, yeah, and I have stepsisters and their kids, okay. but we were totally engaged in politics. Well, we and politics. You, yeah, and you say that the conversations always turn to really deep discussions about politics, and as the youngest, you had to earn your way into those oh, conversations. Yeah, I could not engage. I couldn't really participate, but I listened intently and I used to love the back and forth and one thing about my family is that we've always agreed to disagree so and these would be very um, emotional discussions about whatever the issue was today on the political local state or national politics. Yeah. Do you have any recollection of some of the subjects you all talked about? Oh God yeah and then it was civil rights and yeah. I remember the argument whether it was Nixon or Kennedy. <laughs> in 1960. That was a big deal. I remember that argument. In my yeah, family. it was a big <laughs> argument. And that was prior to Kennedy intervening uh, to assist uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And it was just issues, local issues, local state. And uh, one of the things my dad did, uh, we would always, we got the newspaper. And and to be, I, I mentioned my dad couldn't read or write, but I didn't know that. I may have been in middle school before I figured it out uh, because my father would sit and, and read or look at the paper. I didn't know he wasn't actually reading it. And the other thing he would do is, uh, and the other thing my dad did was work at the poultry. I forgot. For 19 years, he did the graveyard shift at the, at the uh, colonial poultry. So he worked at the chicken plant. But oftentimes between the cotton fields and the chicken plant, he would help me with my homework. My dad had tutored me. Wow. Right? Yeah. And I thought he was just the best tutor ever. 
and I can still see him as we sit here now. In the winter, we he had we had a fireplace, and he would sit back next to the fireplace in a straight back wood chair. And out in the country, we call it re- rod back or reared back. And um, I was, he said, "Oh, son, you can figure it out. You just keep going." And so I think I may have been in fifth, sixth grade. You learn to spell the states, and one of the most difficult states to spell is the state of Mississippi. It's a lot of S's. <laughs> and so I challenged my dad to be able to spell Mississippi. And he couldn't do it. Yeah. And I made fun. I laughed. I said, Daddy, you can't spell Mississippi. And I guess my mother overheard it. That later she called me aside the next day. She said, don't ever do that. Don't ever embarrass your father like that again because he can't read and he can't write. Wow. That's a powerful story. Yeah, and that's painful. I tell it. But I always, when I'm oftentimes in church and as school superintendent, there's a, another story, there's a narrative, there's a moral to this story. Daddy couldn't read and daddy couldn't write, right? But by his presence, the fact that he was present in the room yeah. was the support I needed. And I often explain that when I was superintendent in particular for parents, just be present. Even when my daughter... When she studied, she was advanced trigonometry. <laughs> I couldn't do it. But what I said, well, I'll be, I will be present. And so I see it. You see it every day. And I explain this to parents on Friday night, uh, Friday night football, when the young men are out playing, there are mothers in the stand who know absolutely nothing about football. They don't know tackles from halfbacks. They don't know touchdowns or field goals. But by their presence, I encourage parents who have children uh, in classical orchestras. You don't have to know Bach or Beethoven. You just be present. Because yeah. I guarantee you at any point you got a daughter, they always look up and look at it. Yeah, my daughter and son. I, 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 I hope I was that able to be that for them. But so, okay, so typically I should have established at the very beginning of our conversation all of the credentials that you have. I mentioned some of them in the headlines of the show. Uh, but you're such a good storyteller, I wanted to start with <laughs> stories. Let's pause because we're going to talk about the book in a minute and make sure that people know about your biographical history, your resume, essentially. You, um, won your f- you, you ran for state legislature and won that seat in 1980, what did you say a minute ago? 1987. 87. 86, 87. Okay. And again, we're going to come back to why that's significant. You served how many terms in the legislature? As, as a Democrat out of... Um, Three terms. DeKalb County. Three terms. You... Uh, Ran for Congress. U.S. Congress in 1992 and lost. That was the election that Cynthia McKinney ended up winning. Correct. Correct. Uh, and 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 then the, your, your next step was to run for labor commissioner, am I no, right? Actually, no, actually, I became the director of the Department of Family and Children's Services in 1994. Uh, Zale Miller. Um, you know, I'm in yes. exile. You lose. Right. You know how it is when yes. you lose. I'm in political exile <laughs> yep. back in Athens. Career yep. is over. Yep. And one day I received a call saying, Governor Miller wants to see you. So I come to Atlanta, want you to be the DFAX director. Generally understood to be the worst job in state yeah. government, yeah. right? And uh, But what happened, I took the job, and then welfare reform happened. And I created Work First to help people get back to work. And we helped 90,000 welfare-dependent Georgians get back to work. Yeah. Which led you to become Labor, labor Commissioner. Commi- then I ran for, for labor, labor Commissioner. In 1998. Right. And held that job for... Uh, Three terms, 12 yep. years. Yep. Um, and, and rather than stop at each of these, I want to make sure you held that job, but you you also ran for the United States Senate in 2010. 10. And... That didn't work. Didn't go too well. Who won that race? Johnny Isaacson. Johnny Isaacson became United States senator. All right. So we look at those are electoral challenges that you faced back then. Uh, Some successful, some not so successful. Um, But but then you you, you've already referred to your work as a superintendent. You were called upon if it was hard enough to go to the Department of Children and Family Services you were called upon to become, at first, the acting superintendent of DeKalb County Schools at a time when that school system was in 
chaos. I don't think that's too strong a term for it, is it? No, it was accurate. We were one step away from losing accreditation. Yeah. It was uh, a hot mess, as we would say. And you, you were able to turn it around, essentially. Uh, we had a great team yeah. of great educators who allowed me. I was with uh, some educators from the principal and others from Huntley Hill School yesterday, elementary school. And one of the thing I did was I relied and trusted the leaders in the classroom and in the schools. And we were able to rally and restore some stability to the DeKalb School District. You did that job. You became the permanent. You became the superintendent of DeKalb Schools. And uh, and now, finally, in another elected role, uh, are the CEO of DeKalb County, the chief executive officer of DeKalb County, where uh, at least once a week, I'm sure you're fighting off all of those who are trying to eliminate the position of CEO, <laughs> mostly Republicans. <laughs> well, not so much now, to be honest with you. Initially, uh, that was the case, but that issue is kind of dissipated. At oh, it has? Point. Oh, okay. absolutely. All right, good. Success, good. it's amazing what it would do for you. All right. So there's a there's a basic resume now you, you, for our listeners who have not been aware. You of left your out career. two losses though. Actually, let's go back. Yeah. I lost twice before I was elected to the Georgia House of Representatives. Oh, thank you for reminding me of that. <laughs> all right. Um, so all that said, people have a sense of how much you've devoted your life to public service. Now let's talk about all this in the context of your book, A Story Untold. Um, you were at Clark Central High School. When it became integrated in 1971, the school was integrated. You weren't there quite. It was the 771 school year when the all-black school and the white schools were consolidated into one system. We ended illegal segregation in the state of Georgia in the fall of 1970. Fifteen years plus after Brown versus Board of Education, yes. Clark County With all finally, speed. finally, yeah, <laughs> Clark County, County finally. Uh, comes together. And you weren't there at first, but you were part of the first graduating class in which the school uh, yes. w- was a mi- mixed black and white uh, school. Um, and it was, um, I, it's interesting to think about the fact that th- there was, you know, we tend to think that it's of the white families that didn't want black students coming in. I mean, that's the, that's the stereotypical picture of integrated schools. But the black families were no more enthusiastic about merging with the white students than uh, than the white families were, were they? Well, and it was different attitudes, but for well, myself. Well, sure, nothing is. Yeah, yeah. No, it wasn't universal, but I love Bernie Harris High School. And I, the black it, school. The all-black school. And I wanted to graduate from Bernie Harris High School. I invested a tremendous amount of effort and time uh, to build a career at Bernie Harris. I had my senior year just set in terms of what I wanted to achieve. Uh, I had been second string on the football team, and the guy in front of me was graduating. So I was I was getting ready to be a starter on the football team. Um, I wanted to win the Boy of the Year Award. That was before Boy became a pejorative term. <laughs> and all of that just went up in smoke. Yeah. yeah. After 12 years of work, I lost it all. Well, you didn't do poorly after all. I mean, you became <laughs> what, student? Council co-president? Yeah, but I didn't get to be boy of the year. They, okay. they canceled that, you well, know, and that's been a, a just a, a, a burden <laughs> on me for all these years. All right. So uh, <laughs> did you have did you have textbooks, the black students? Not in one particular class we didn't, which was our black history class, which is one of the things we had negotiated for, that we wanted to have an African-American history class uh, at Clark Central for students who were interested in the subject. And, of course, that was the only class where we did not have a textbook. Uh, Mrs. Elizabeth King, who's a legendary educator in Athens, who's still alive, uh, would copy uh, articles from Ebony Magazine or Jet Magazine or or wherever she could find them, and that's what she used to teach us with. Yeah. Uh, That sort of began your quest to learn more about the African-American history of Athens, Georgia. Well, yeah, because I complained about it. Yeah. And I told her, and we felt that it was discriminatory. And one day, I guess Miss King had had enough, and she says, if you want a textbook for this class, then go out and write one. Yeah. And, and it was an amazing moment. 
and and that's what you eventually did. Yeah, right do. one. Yeah, you did, which is what became a story untold. Published first in 1978 Eight by the Clark County School District. Uh, I went to see. Dr. Charles McDaniel, who was the superintendent in Athens at that point, who became the state school superintendent, by the way, shortly thereafter. And he agreed to publish a 25-page pamphlet yeah. that I would write. And even better, it was right before I went on to law school, he agreed to pay me $100 yeah. a week for four weeks. <laughs> you tell a great story about that. You say how nervous you were oh, God. waiting to go in to see him to I make went over this three, proposal. It was like the third or fourth time I would <laughs> sit in the parking lot. And I could see him. You were a kid. Yeah, I mean, no, I've been a superintendent. I, I can't remember a kid showing up yeah. saying, I want to see the superintendent. Yeah. And, I was just that insane. And he liked the idea so much, as you said. He uh, said, well, I'll pay you 100 bucks a week for four weeks. weeks to go out and do this thing. So I went out, I wrote it, got it typed up, turned it in, went out to law school. But something had captured my imagination. The information continued uh, to roll in. I continued to find new facts, new events. So I went back to see Dr. McDaniel and asked for my manuscript back and continued to work on the book during my three years I was at uh, the University of South Carolina Law School. You, uh, you say that you were, um, as you searched at one point for something about African Americans in Athens, you suddenly came across a um, master's thesis about Athens during the antebellum period, and the quote you have is, I was sitting in the Hargett Special Collection section of UGA's main library with tears streaming from my eyes. Um, and it was a, just an incredibly emotional experience because you say, we recognize that black history is American history. People of all races and colors understand that defining, documenting, and sharing our history benefits all all of us, as Southerners, we are connected by a shared heritage and history. Absolutely. It was a Sunday afternoon after a big debate over whether or not African Americans in Athens had ever achieved anything of significance. So I found a master's thesis, I think it's by Peter Schinkel, and it was post, it was after the Civil War, and it was the first election. And as I was reading it, Bill, there were two black men running for the Georgia House of Representatives. Who were they? Alfred Richardson and Madison Davis. Yeah. All right. Oh, my God. They actually had, we had candidates who were African-American, but I was telling myself, no way they won, because someone would have told me by now, we would know about this. Obviously, they lost. So I read through, it comes April, I think it's 24th, uh, 1865, 1866, and they won. They won. That's, I was just crying. They won. Yeah. I, I had never heard even uh, our odor of information about them or the fact that African Americans had represented Athens in the Georgia House of Representatives. Well, okay, so hold, hold that thought for a minute. 1978, a story untold is published, and this story about these two first African American representatives in the legislature, of course, is an early story in the book. Forty Plus years later, this book is republished, is re-released, and just this past month, you celebrated the new edition of the book being out, yeah? Yeah, 40th anniversary, third edition. It's, uh, and it was, it came, it happened, it came to be because the Athens Historical Society reached out to me, a gentleman named Dan Aldrich, uh, reached out on behalf of the Athens Historical Society and said, we would like to republish your book. Okay, so so it is now available again. I, I looked at I got it on Amazon, downloaded it uh, so I could read it to be sure that I was somewhat uh, capable of talking to you about it. Um, so let's go back. So, by the way, okay, so you have two state reps elected out of Clark County. Yes, you said 1868, they 18, were the, among the first African Americans to represent. But let's not move so fast because you make an interesting point. Uh, when they went to came to Atlanta to serve in the legislature, was no, it wouldn't have been Atlanta in those yeah, it days. Was Atlanta. It was Atlanta. Okay, yeah. so they came to Atlanta, and what they were told was, well, no, 
you have the right to be elected, but that doesn't mean you can serve. Yeah, you have a right to vote, but it's not the right to hold office. <laughs> yeah. So they were expelled. Yeah. They were actually kicked out. Henry McNeil Turner, who was a representative from Macon Bill County, made this amazing speech on behalf of the black legislators who were expelled because of their color. Uh, from, and it was like 18 months before the federal government forced uh, the Georgia General Assembly to uh, return them to office. And they did serve. We're going to have to take a break, but here's the what I've been sort of building for. They served in what years? 1868 to about 1872. And it was about 100 years after they finished their service in the legislature before another black person was elected to the legislature from Athens, Clark County. And, and who was that, Mr. Thurman? That was a blessing. It was you. It was me. That story I had never heard before. And I, it, it, you said it. I remember when you arrived in the legislature and, and thinking of you as a pretty uh, interesting guy. But I had no idea. And I'll, when we come back, there's a backstory. But coming home that afternoon, I told my sister in 1975 that I will be the next African-American black man elected to the legislature <laughs> from Clark County. That was in 1975. I ultimately got elected in 1986, three campaigns later. Yeah. We're uh, talking to Michael, Michael Thurman. His book is A Story Untold, Black Men and Women in Athens History. Uh, he's been a longtime panelist on Political Rewind, and uh, you've heard his credentials. He served in uh, public service his entire career. Uh, when we come back, more with Michael Thurman. Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start, and by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. The things you need to live a healthy life, good food, safe housing, transportation, all cost money. And for many people living on disability benefits, money is tight. But it's going to cost me $15 to go to the doctor. I don't have $15. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The impact of poverty on health in rural America. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org. Michael Thurman, we're going to skip around in the history of Athens that you've written in your book. Uh, what was the Jubilee and when did it come to Athens? May 4th, 1865, about 10 a.m. in the morning, the Union troops rolled into Athens. And one former slave named Tom Singleton said that sure was a rally day for the black folk. About 5,000 <laughs> rushed into Athens. And it was conflict and emotions. And uh, Henry McNeil Turner said that it was he had witnessed scenes that made the nerves quiver. I think Du Bois said that it was a time of times and a half time. And it wasn't the Emancipation Proclamation because Lincoln had signed that in January 1863. Freedom showed up with the Union soldiers and bayonets and guns, and that was in May of 1865. One of the reasons they came to Athens was they were looking for Jefferson Davis. He had fled, and so yes. they were looking for the president of the Confederacy. Yes, he had taken off to find a safe place. Uh, the, the South was crumbling, uh, and the war was basically over. Slavery finally had been destroyed. And a new order, what Lincoln called a new birth of freedom, was beginning to manifest itself. He um, eventually, this isn't part of your book, but history tells us that Jefferson Davis was eventually apprehended. And, of course, the fable and perhaps true story we don't really know is that he was hiding in women's clothing, which was... Uh, couldn't have been more disgraceful in terms of how Southerners responded to that. Yeah, and there is conflict over whether or yeah. not that's true, but that's the way the people in the North told the story, and Southerners big to differ. So um, how did Jubilee, how did the emancipation affect African Americans in Athens at the time? Of course, 
obviously free after two and a half centuries yeah. of slavery, perpetual servitude, 400 years in America. Suddenly you had millions, about 4 million African-Americans free. But as uh, LeBron Bennett pointed out, they were free to the rain, free to the wind, free to hunger because they had no money. There yeah. was no compensation for it. And so they were just set adrift on a sea. Which is why some uh, former slaves chose to remain with their former masters. You tell a story about um, Robert Shepard. Yes. Who said, I'm better off essentially staying with my master. He'll pay me. He'll he'll feed me. Yeah. Yeah, that's sharecropping. Yeah. What replaced, other than peonage, what replaced that labor system of forced labor was sharecropping. There are many blacks who stayed on those locations and worked for their former owners on shares, which is why we refer to it as sharecropping. Yeah. It's interesting that I was born into a family that still participated in that form of labor that followed emancipation. One of the things that former slaves were promised, of course, was uh, 40 acres and a mule. And you tell us that uh, it in, in Athens, as I assume in other communities around the country with former slaves, there was this uh, expectation based on really nothing, not factual, that Christmas, Christmas would be the day that those 40 acres and the mules would come to these families. And it was really an illusion. I mean, there was nothing based that, that, that was uh, factual about that. Well, the radical Republicans, there were some uh, in Washington who wanted to appropriate the land of the Confederates uh, who had fought against the United States of America and redistribute that land to the former slaves. What's interesting, though, uh, in, on the coast between Char uh, Charleston and Jacksonville, something I talk about in, in, in another book I wrote, the Sherman Reservation delineated 400,000-plus acres of land mm -hmm. for former slaves, and Sherman used the mules and horses and things that they had confiscated on the march from Atlanta to Savannah and redistributed those to the former slaves. So from Jacksonville to Charleston, 30 miles in from the sea, was designated the Sherman Reservation. Yeah. You tell a fascinating story, which has a certain irony built into it, given what eventually, another element of your book, given what happens to the University of Georgia when Hamilton Holmes and Charlene Hunter-Galt become the first African-Americans admitted to UGA. But you tell a story about it, the, the, uh, it, in the aftermath of Jubilee, when freed slaves tried to come to UGA and watch a commencement exercise. Oh, yeah. It, uh, violence would, well, actually, it resulted in some violence and some shots fired. And what African-Americans wanted most was they wanted access to education. Yeah. And so that was literally an assault on the uh, North Campus at UGA of African-Americans demanding education. Uh, others, the AMA and other uh, philanthropic organizations began to set up schools uh, in the Reconstruction South, and children, boys, girls, men and women, all wanted one thing. They wanted access to the written word. And uh, one historian said it, it appears as if the entire race wanted to go to school. The first black school in Athens was the Knox Institute? Yes. It opened in 1868. Um, it was, as you say, there were no they, they were not African American. There weren't blacks. There weren't public schools that African not Americans that were going into at that point. So there were all these, and you document a number of them in your book. Private institutions that were uh, developed for specifically educating blacks. Yes, and primarily staffed by white teachers from the north, uh, who were affiliated with various religious denominations, and they were ostracized and punished for, uh, and I want the N word uh, being N word teachers which yeah. I won't repeat, but they received a tremendous a tremendous amount of uh, uh, anger and, and, and uh, some were even attacked violently for attempting to teach uh, the former slaves how to read and write. Um, there, there was some public appropriation of money because I, I, you, you talk at a certain point in the book about the fact that black students accounted for 63% of the total student population in 1916... Mm -hmm. 
Black schools received only 33% of the appropriations. Well, the public schools were first legislated during the Reconstruction. Okay. And the primary advocates for that were some of the first black legislators who were not really given credit for it. And because now uh, Henry Louis Gates has a great documentary on public TV about Reconstruction. But in Georgia, those black legislators helped to create the first statewide public school system. Yeah. Um, you do in your book, you, you, you have a section of your book dedicated to people who you consider heroic figures in the education movement. Uh, just share with us, who is, who is one of the great uh, African-American educators in your mind? Samuel F. Harris. Why? Professor Samuel F. Harris. Uh, the former all-black high school was Bernie Harris, named after him, high school. There's now a middle school in Clark County uh, uh, named after him, Bernie, you know, named after Samuel F. Harris. He was an amazing educator. By the way, <laughs> guess where he was educated primarily? Where? At the University of Georgia. Really? Yes. Uh, in the latter part of the uh, 1800s, uh, he actually, I, I guess, local professors really admired him. He was a child prodigy in music. And the legend is it's told by whites and blacks and then documented that uh, he was able to tutor, uh, to sit through and audit classes at UGA. He actually passed enough classes to earn a degree. He was denied a degree because of his color. And the business community, primarily whites in Athens, sent him to Morris Brown College here in Atlanta, where he earned a master's degree in one summer. And he came back and became a legendary educator. Uh, in Athens and Clark County. He was the first to incorporate what we call vocational education, mm-hmm. technical education, into the public school curriculum. Something which you as labor commissioner understood very, very oh, well. Oh, yes, and I adopted one motto that we used when I was labor commissioner was there's dignity in work. Well, that was a Samuel Harris quote. So let me bring it up. Let, let's talk about today for a moment. Let's could, let's take a step back from your history of of uh, Athens. Where do we stand today, having been the superintendent of the Cab Schools, in equalizing the education that African Americans and whites receive in the state of Georgia? Well, because I'm a historian, I can look at it in the present tense. If you look at it historically, one of the things I won't uh, try to talk about when I'm out around the state. Legalized slavery existed in the United States of America for almost four centuries, right? Uh, Just here in Georgia from seven, you know, once it was legalized in 1750 to 1865, slavery was legal. For the next hundred years, segregation was legal, whereby uh, it was intentional to underfund and create a second-class education system for African-American children. That system was not abolished in my life until the fall of 1970. We've only had one educational system since 1970, and now it's 2019, right? If you do the math, that's about what, 40, 70, 100? 40, almost 50 years. So we're still struggling today. Well, you can't undo centuries of racism and segregation in four decades. We shouldn't expect it. It's just put, put it in context. For all of those centuries, for all of those years, first it was illegal to teach African Americans how to read and write. Then it was legal to make sure that if they received an education, they received a second-class education. So beginning in 1970, coming forward, at least now the opportunity exists for all children of all races to have equal access. I listen, and I listen intently for people who, well, I'm frustrated. Well, you can't undo all of that in two generations. Now, are we better than where we were? Of course. Are we where we need to be? Absolutely not. But it's a process. History is a journey. And we will continue on that journey. I told my daughter, uh, and I'm proud of her, so I can talk about it. What does your daughter do? 
she's in your business. She's a anchor. Oh, I'm sorry. In Raleigh, I'm North sorry. Carolina. She's a weekend anchor. <laughs> but the point is, and I'm proud of her because she earned a, a master's degree from Harvard University last year. Wow. But you know what I mean? I said, look, I showed her something. I had one of my dad's checks that he signed with an X. And I said, we're carrying this on Harvard Yard today. So in one generation, you go from a man who could not read or write to a one generation later, a granddaughter with a degree from Harvard University. Wow. See, that's the power of education and particularly public education. Um, I want to take a break because uh, we have to get it in. But before I do, uh, and perhaps because I want to use some music to play our way into the break, who you, you tell many, many stories in this book, and we're not going to get to most of them. <laughs> People should read the book. But you, you do talk about educators. Uh, you, you talk about political figures. You talk about um, journalists, African-American yeah, journalists. But one of the most interesting people to me uh, was uh, Hall Johnson. Who was Hall oh, Johnson? Yes. Oh, he's a great composer and conductor and uh, who in the mid-30s and 40s was the most prominent of all. And he was known throughout the world and celebrated all across this country. The Hall Johnson Choir was preeminent in terms of music and composition and performance. Among other things, he worked on some of the Disney pictures, yes. including Dumbo yes. and others. Uh, but he also, he also, his choir did some of the most amazing, uh, authentic gospel choir yes. music. And as we go to this break, before we continue our conversation, let's listen to the uh, Hall Johnson Choir. On the next fresh air, as the 50th anniversary of the first moon landing approaches, Charles Fishman talks about how much of the Apollo program was improvised, from hand-wired computers to spacesuits designed by Playtex. His new book is One Giant Leap. Join us. Fresh air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and on gpbnews.org. I'm Christy Kent, the Director of Communications for the Georgia's Rome Office of Tourism. Our mission is to strengthen the economic prosperity of the community through tourism development. We underwrite with GPB because they create strong connections with our listeners through storytelling that is full of rich and meaningful content. To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org. Michael Thurman, one of the people you talk about in your book, is a man who was a slave who fought his way out of slavery and ended up founding a college in Georgia. Owned by a professor at the University of Georgia, Lucius Henry Hosey, founded Payne College in Augusta, Georgia, my alma mater. Your alma mater. That's right. That's right. <laughs> did and you know his story when you uh, decided to go to Payne College, or did no, you only learn it after you got was, there? I learned about the Athens connection after I graduated yeah. from Payne College, yeah. to be quite honest. But with you didn't I, know it had been founded by a slave before you went there. I found out about Hosey after I, yeah. after I arrived on campus. That must I didn't have know been it. breathtaking. It absolutely was, and... Um, it was a part of history that Dr. Lucius Pitts brought back to college because there were some people who did not like Hosey in the later part of his career because he became frustrated uh, with post-Reconstruction South and began to advocate for a separate territory for African Americans. Mm -hmm. So he was kind of pushed aside, to be quite honest with you, yeah. because of his beliefs. One of the most uh, emotionally charged sections of your book is a is a collection of photographs of African-Americans and accompanying it, there are, what, are about 20 photos, I think, yes. Mike, that you collected from various sources. And it's in a section called, Who Are We? And the text that accompanies it 
is a beautiful poem, long poem. We don't have time for all of it. But as I read the poem, I was kind of thrilled when I got to the end and realized you had written it. Would you share just a little of it? What's it? What's what's it? Well, I had photos left with no narrative, so I decided at the last minute to write a poem. Who are we? We are the pain and suffering of Mother Africa. Torn from her womb, we arrived in the land of the free, locked in chains. Orphaned and forsaken, we began our sojourn in the wilderness of American slavery. Who are we, Bill? We are the tillers of soil and the hewers of wood. King Cotton rose to power because we bent our backs in toil. Our blood and tears have irrigated every inch of this fair land. We are the reapers of a bitter fruit. Oh. When did you write that? Sitting at my mother's dining room table. A few weeks, everything was complete. And I had the photos left over, and I said, I have to figure out a way to include the photos. So I came up with the idea of having a photo essay uh, with a poem uh, associated with it. And so in an afternoon, I wrote it in two or three hours. Uh, it's a beautiful poem, and the uh, photographs that accompany it are well worth, I think, uh, going out and getting the book, even if you don't read the rest of what Thurman wrote, <laughs> although the book is, is fascinating. Uh, a story untold. I, I want to talk to you a little more. We have some time. We should point out that, of course, this is not your only book. This was the first book that you published, uh, but then you wrote uh, Freedom, which we happen to have a copy of right here, if uh, we can see it on Facebook uh, Live. And uh, this also, this is a collection of stories about African Americans who had been enslaved and the stories of of their journeys and the heroic episodes in some of their lives. Well, the subtitle is Georgia's Anti-Slavery Heritage. And this, the central figure in the book actually is not an African-American, it's James Oglethorpe, who is the father of Georgia, uh, who founded Georgia as the only one of the 13 original colonies where slavery was prohibited. And Georgia has a very rich anti-slavery heritage. Uh, the founding father... Georgia, for the first 20 years of its existence, slavery was prohibited. Uh, he became an outspoken and vocal advocate against the institution of slavery. And I don't want to go into my next book, but I argue that he was, in fact, the first abolitionist. But you are working on a biography of James Oglethorpe. That focuses on his advocacy. One of the, I think, unfortunate aspects of history, and particularly Southern history, is that we painted in just white and black. The reality is that all whites did not support slavery, or all whites in the South did not support the Confederacy. There were those in the North who supported slavery, who supported the South, and we shouldn't paint it with a broad brush. And so what I've tried to do is to develop a more nuanced, realistic view of our history, uh, of this state, and my ultimate goal, which has happened in Athens, is that the information that I researched and wrote 40 years ago have now been incorporated into the official histories of Athens, and that's what I would hope would happen here in Georgia, uh, because Georgia now is becoming a more diverse state of many races, colors, creeds, and religions. We really need to revisit our history and recognize that we are a state of many people, and Oglethorpe envisioned that. He was way, way before his time. He had an amazing humanitarian vision that was very welcoming for people of all races, uh, Jews that migrated to Georgia, uh, Protestants, Catholic, you know, not Catholic, but Protestants, you know, yeah. they were in Florida. <laughs> very, very, very progressive view. Um, we're really running short on time, but you lead to a really important question, uh, and it's one you, you've wrestled with because of your involvement in figuring out how to deal with the, uh, the Confederate presence on Stone Mountain. Um, how do we reconcile the things that we, uh, we love about the state of Georgia, uh, the, the literature, the, 
the food, the um, great leaders who have come and gone. There are so many, the music. There are so many things that people can uh, love about the state, but there's such a dark history that lies underneath all of that. How do you reconcile those two things, Mike? Well, it's also a very inspiring history that has not been fully told or embraced. And we recognize that we do have a shared heritage and a shared history. And that was in action. There were people who worked together. And we elevate. You learn from it. You don't dwell on it. You learn from it. And from what you can learn, you can build a brighter future. And that's been my focus, to create a history. One of the things that you can't really appreciate your history if you don't respect other people's history. You know, that's a great um, variation on something that my wife says all the time to people. She's, she talks about the, the definition of an enemy is someone whose story you don't know. And you're talking about the same thing on a larger scale. Oh, absolutely. And and that's what that's why I wrote the book. I want the work to be respected, but I want the history of my ancestors to be respected. But that requires me to respect the history of others yeah. and to learn from it and, and understand where they intersect and how they uh, uh, benefit from each other. I, I love Georgia history. I love Georgia. We just need to tell the story. We need to tell the complete story. Yeah. Michael Thurman, uh, your, your book is... Uh, Story Untold. It is available on Amazon. I don't mind telling that to people. And uh, it's a worthwhile read because it will tell you stories about people that many of us had no idea were out there in Georgia's past. It's been a great pleasure to have you do the show today. And Michael, you also, I hope, will continue to be just one of our most insightful panelists in the coming year, especially with the presidential race upon us and, and the races here in Georgia as Absolutely, a panelist Bill. on thank Political Rewind. Thank you so Rewind. much for your support. And thank you for noticing me sitting <laughs> on the back bench uh, way back You've in 1987. You've done all right since those days, I don't Mike. really understand what you saw at that point in time, and it could have just been a random thought, but... That was a key moment in my political career. Well, thanks for being here, and we'll see you again soon on Political Rewind. Uh, before we leave you today, uh, many of you may have heard me a couple weeks ago uh, uh, tell you a, a story about the fact that uh, Kenny Leon, former artistic director of the Alliance Theater, Tony Award-winning director. Uh, are you going to play a little of that music underneath, uh, Jesse? It's so great. Yeah. Um, he uh, uh, he was directing a show in New York right now at Shakespeare in the Park. It's much ado about nothing. Uh, I pointed out on the show that it he said it in a modern context, and the uh, family is an African American family. It's the first African American production of Much Ado About Nothing. And on the set, he's put up a banner that says Stacey Abrams in 2020. Uh, he's not promoting her candidacy. He just figures that this family would probably have supported her. Well, the show opened officially in New York last night. Stacey Abrams saw it last Friday night. The reviews have been ecstatic. Uh, Jesse uh, Green in the New York Times raves about the show, uh, says it's an entirely new interpretation of Much Ado About Nothing set in modern times. And I just wanted to say to our very good friend, Kenny Leon, we're so happy for the recognition you've gotten for this show as you have for so much of your other work. Congratulations on your work on Much Ado About Nothing. That's it for Political Rewind today. We're back on Friday at 2 with another Political Rewind. In the meantime, have a great couple of days.